The scriptures say, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we have read your words and so we believe that you have spoken to us. You preserved these words written by the hand of your servant John, inspired by the Holy Spirit and given as a gift and a blessing to the church. Father, that we might know, as Jesus said, that you sent him. And Father... When we know that you've sent Jesus, we have to make a choice. We have to react to that. We have to say that we believe that the fact that Jesus is sent, that it has an effect on our lives, that it calls us to decide, that it calls us to act. And so we choose to either reject what you have done and what you have convinced and convicted us of, or we choose to accept it. On Palm Sunday, we remember the fact that the crowds cried, Hosanna, Hosanna out loud and accepted. But when the truth of who you are, Jesus, was made known to them, when the tide turned, when the crowd was not satisfied with the work that you were doing and the authorities around you conspired to put you to death, the crowd rejected you. And so, Father, we pray today, given another opportunity to hear the word and to decide, we pray that our hearts would not be hardened, that we would not turn away, that we would not run from the implications of what's written in Scripture, but that we would, seeing your glory unveiled in the Scripture, seeing your purpose for us, that we would believe it, receive it, and walk in it, that we would say yes to the kingship and the authority of Jesus and no to our own kingship and authority. May we submit ourselves to you for you're the one who gives life and power and breath and all things to us. May we obey you as king. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So um, to test myself and to test my, my memories, I had to go and uh, look up a, a cartoon on YouTube this week. Um, I have a tendency to remember things greater than they were, like to just remember a movie as being like the greatest thing I have ever seen. It's just, wow, the first time I saw it, it just completely overwhelmed me, exciting, you know. And, and then I go back and I watch it 20 years later and I'm like, what was I thinking? 
So, so I have this, I have this memory of this cartoon being absolutely hysterical and I go back and I watch it and I'm, I'm sitting there like, yes, Bugs Bunny is still as funny today as he was. I think when they, when they put pen on cellophane and, and invented those cartoons, I love Bugs Bunny. Um, now, you, uh, I'm watching this cartoon and, I, and something occurs to me that, that Bugs Bunny is not normal. Okay, you, you, may, you may not recall Bugs Bunny in all of his glory and grandeur, but this is no ordinary rabbit. This is a powerful being, okay, who can do all kinds of things. Now, the cartoon that I'm referring to is one called Racketeer Rabbit, where Bugs is just looking to get out of the rain, and he goes and he hides in this house, and uh, he, there's, he kind of creates some kind of hole in the floor that he walks down. It's got stairs, you know, he's got a candle, he's got his nightshirt, he's got his nightcap. Uh, wherever he goes, he's got everything he needs, right? This is, this is Bugs Bunny. He, he, he can be have nothing in his hands, and he can create a little place to live, and all of a sudden all his stuff is with him. Um, so, so these two gangsters show up, and they're, they're running from the police. They've probably committed a bank robbery, and they're hiding here. And, uh, and as they begin to fire off their machine guns and repel the police, Bugs is awoken from his slumber, and he comes out. And, and being the moral rabbit that he is, decides that he's going to interfere and make these guys regret. I'm assuming, I'm assuming his character here, what he's doing. Because um, he's going he's gonna to begin to mess with these guys, right? And as, um, as they, they become irritated with him, Rocky, the, the bigger one, decides it's time to, to take this guy for a ride, is what he says. Let's, let's, go, let's go put some, uh, some concrete shoes on this guy and throw him in the water. And that's when, when Bugs uh, decides he's going to, to overwhelm this, these gangsters and, and make them flee in terror. Um, so he convinces Rocky that the cops are here, right? All of a sudden, he just changes the conversation, and, and, and Rocky goes with him. He just engages and, 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 uh, and, and responds. He's like, oh, the cops are here. You have to hide. And, and Rocky's like, oh, no. You know, he's got his, he's got his uh, Tommy gun and his, his zoot suit on and his, and his hat. And, uh, and so he says, quick, hide in this trunk. And, and Rocky gets in there. You know, and he gets in the trunk, and, and he closes the lid. And then Bugs puts on his police voice. Where is he? Where's Rocky? You know, like, and then he says, he says, uh, Rocky's not here. He's gone. And the police says, no, he was just here a minute ago. And he says, no, 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 no. Maybe he's in this box or here's, maybe he's in this trunk. No, 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 he's not in there. He says, if, if Rocky were in this trunk and he pulls out this big sword, would I do this? And he like stabs it in the box. And he says, if, if my dear old bosom chum was encased therein, would I have the temerity to do this? And he stabs the box again. And then the, the police officer says, uh, yeah, he's in there. Give me that trunk, right? And Bugs, you know, there is no police officer there. Bugs takes the box and he drags it down all the steps, right? Imagine you're, you're, you're hiding and there is a, a rabbit doing this. And then, and then uh, the Bugs says, no, 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 you know, this is my box. And he drags it all the way back up the stairs again. And then he, 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 uh, he opens up the, uh, the top of the lid and he says, I got him. I got him on the ropes. You know, they're almost convinced. Here, hold my watch. And he hands him this bomb. You know, closes the lid. Um, the, the bomb goes off. Rocky jumps out and says, um, are, are, am I safe? And uh, Bug says, uh, yeah, the cops are gone. You're safe now, pal. And he says, which way did they go? And, then, and Bug says, that way. And then the guy runs screaming in terror to go and turn himself into the cops because he, he, he gets to get away from Bugs. Uh, got, just think about his power there for a second. Think about it. He, this is a powerful rabbit. Um, only a cartoon bunny treats people this way, right? Oh, no, 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 no real being would treat any human like that. 
Hold on to that thought as we, as we, we turn to our text for this morning. Um, Palm Sunday, we acknowledge the, the, the tragedy of the picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as predicted by scripture, coming into his own to, to receive the glory that's due him, to, to receive a crown, to, to be honored by the people. The Old Testament closes by saying, the Lord whom you seek will come into his holy temple. And Jesus goes in to Jerusalem and enters the temple. And this is supposed to be a time where he is recognized as Lord and Savior and King of the earth. This is, this has happened in similar fashion over and over in the Old Testament as the glory of God descends on the tabernacle or descends and, and uh, lands on Solomon's temple. And yet the people's hearts quickly turn away when, when God does not give them every single thing they desire. And so, so as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to the praise and glory of the crowd, as they're excited that he is coming, they think, here is Jesus and he's going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem. We're going to be free. They're celebrating. Jesus knows this is empty. That this, that this praise is not going to result in any lasting commitment to him. That in a week they will turn and abandon him. And so there's a, there's a tragedy here. But let's, let's pull back just from, from that for just a moment and, and look at the event that John says initiates the, the turning of the, the leadership away from Jesus. And then we'll, we'll come back to Bugs Bunny in just a couple of minutes. Um, so, so Jesus has left the Jerusalem area. This is back in, in John chapter 11. He's out in the wilderness with his followers and he's, he's teaching and his friends, Mary and Martha, send word that they need help. We saw them last week in Luke chapter 10. That's kind of uh, maybe the intro to Mary and Martha in terms of Jesus' life. Now he has visited probably several times and grown very close with them and they send word, come and help. Lazarus is ill. If you look at the passage, you'll see it says in verse 1, a certain man was ill, right? And then in verse 2, it says that, that Mary had anointed the Lord with ointment, or, uh, wiped his feet. Her brother was ill. They send the message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So we ought to be thinking, we're primed by the text, right? That something's wrong. This guy is sick. Jesus hears of the illness, though, and seems to dismiss the messenger saying this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. This, this illness is, is not going to result in his death. This is for the glory of God. Think about this. Jesus has tremendous power here to heal and to do something, to intervene for his friend. And yet, when he speaks, he doesn't say, oh, I'll get right on that, I'm coming. Wow, does that fit with your image of what Jesus would do? Would he do that? It will result in the glory of God, this illness. Jesus says, God's name and his fame will be magnified. God will be seen to be who he is, and people will worship him. The Son, too, he will be glorified as well. 
Jesus then says, or we see in verse 5, that it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister, name not mentioned, Mary, and Lazarus. He loved them. Well, we know what the loving response here would be. We know what we would want if we were ill and we sent to our good friend who was a doctor and had, had power and ability, come, help, your, your friend who you love is ill. So verse 6 goes on and says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, there's that word again, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now the text does not go on to say he had a lot of appointments, He had things which were keeping him there. He had paid a deposit and would lose his money. You know, if he, if he pulled out now, he wouldn't, he would, he would, he would lose the trip. You know, the plane ticket would go to waste. There's nothing that seems to be holding him there. It says that he loves the sisters. And so what does he do? He remains two more days. Wow. Does that fit with your image of who Jesus is? Would he, would he do that? When we're in need and we cry out for help and we say, Lord, rescue me. And, and, and he's not busy making connections. He's not overwhelmed with prayer requests. But he just decides to wait two more days. Does that fit with your image of who God is? Would he do that to you? I, I asked the question because... Because I think, like, Bugs Bunny's words describing his, his good old bosom chum Rocky, right? As, as, he, as he stabs these swords into the box, uh, those words do not line up with love and affection and care, right? Now, this is, this is uh, sarcasm and, and torment. And so Jesus says, John says that, that that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary. And, and we're starting to see a disconnect here. Wait, what is going on? Why doesn't he go? Why doesn't he rescue? Why doesn't he save? And then after those two days, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. Now the disciples maybe thought the reason that he's, he's not going is because there in that place there is danger. There's a, there's a risk to Jesus. Back when Jesus was there originally um, in uh, John chapter 10, I believe, no, John chapter, yeah, John chapter 10, when, when Jesus was there, he, he, he spoke and preached and, and so inflamed and angered the people that they took up rocks to stone him. In John 10, 28, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, the, the crowd freaked out about this. Who are you to say that you're going to give anyone eternal life? And so maybe the disciples thought, um, well, we're not going there. We're not going back because of the threat to Jesus. But then two days later, he says, let's go. And, and they're like, wait a minute, we're going, we're going back there where they threatened to, to, to kill you? Jesus answers them. And I think this is a key principle for this passage. John's a good writer. He, he introduces the idea here in verse 9. This is what Jesus says. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Right? The idea is, if we walk in a way that's consistent with what God has for us, if, if we live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, if we, if we walk in the light of, of the revelation of God, if we walk in truth, then we don't stumble. Verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, 
He stumbles because the light is not in him. Two ways. If you walk in the light and Jesus is the light, you will never go wrong. But if you are committed to to denying the light or living in a way that's contrary to the light, to fighting the light, you will certainly fail. And we're going to see this in a big way at the end of the story. So Jesus says these things and then he says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to reawaken him. Oh, oh good. Okay, good. So, so he's not, he wasn't that sick at all. They've, they've not yet heard anything. Um, he'll, he'll get better, right? You know, this is, this is good. Um, we're going to wake him up. Why are we doing this? Putting ourselves into harm's way to go and, and, and wake Lazarus up. This doesn't seem right. You didn't go when he was really sick. Um, not really, not really understanding that. We'll see in verse 13 that they, they completely miss the point. Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. To them, sleep is nothing. And he will recover if he's not feeling well. To Jesus, death is nothing. It's like sleep. And he can just wake someone up when he chooses. Isn't it strange then, if if death is like sleep to Jesus, that he would not choose to wake up those whom he loves and to help them at their time of need? So they say, okay, good. You know, if he's if he's if he's not that sick, he'll he'll get better. Nice warm bed, a couple of days of rest, matzo ball soup. You know, it'll be good. You'll be you'll be back on your feet. So Jesus clarifies for them in verse fourteen. He tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to them. Wow. Would, would, would Jesus say that? I was glad I was not there to heal. I was, I was glad that I, I was not there to do something to show mercy so that that I can use this as an opportunity for belief? Wow, Jesus is going to use this opportunity. Is that consistent with your vision of whom God is? That, that, that he can use suffering or difficulty in your life? That you can be in a time of, of incredible difficulty, of incredible struggle, of incredible Pain. You can be experiencing anxiety over finances or physical difficulty, or you can be struggling and agonizing over the choices that someone you make is, someone, someone you know is making, and, and you're just, you're praying and lifting it up, and God is going to use it for something. Is that consistent with what you believe? Because let me tell you what. Many, many times when the gospel is preached and presented to people, it's, it's if you trust in Jesus, you will have joy and peace and smooth sailing and easy circumstances. And that is not John 11. That's not John 11 at all. John 11 is is this man who Jesus loved, who was close to him, this family that had supported him, They send word for help and no message comes back and Jesus does not come and Lazarus dies. Are we tools or toys to be used by God? Racketeer rabbit, right? 
my bosom chum Lazarus. If, if, if he were sick, would I do this? Right? Think about it. What, what is our image of, of, of God the Father? Is this consistent with, with the way that he should act with the God that we lift up in worship? Let me tell you what, folks. This is, this is whenever somebody comes to me, uh, whenever I, I sit down with someone for coffee or I'm talking with somebody, you know, or I get a message and somebody asks a question like, okay, if God is all powerful, why? And I'm, and I'm like, okay, bad. This is the bad things question, right? Why do bad things happen? And, and so they say, they say, you know, if, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Or why are there so many hungry people? Or why is there cancer? Or why is there this? And, and my, this is my response to him, to them. This is the best and hardest question you can ask. If someone asks this question, I think they've finally arrived at a knowledge of who God claims to be, absolutely sovereign, completely in control, and utterly good. And then they look at the world and they say, well, if if that's who he is, would he do this? this? Is this what God does with his power and his goodness? And it, it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking that thinks, if God is good then that would drive and move him to crush all evil immediately. And so maybe he's, maybe he's limited in his power. But that's not what the Bible teaches. They, they, think, they think, okay, if God is all-powerful and he can do anything at any time, whenever he wills, then, then maybe, he's not, maybe he's not good like we think. And this is the dilemma in the mind. You know what the unthinkable answer seems to be? The unthinkable or the, the answer that makes us squirm, that makes us say, who, who is this being? Is this one? God is good. And God is all-powerful. And perhaps he has a reason that he is not telling us why he allows evil to continue. Or maybe the answer when we hear it we'll say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound good. And we'll be left in a place where we have to trust what God is doing. The response that we should give when people ask this question is not, how dare you question God? Not, that's, that's not the way that we should respond. Jesus is not harsh in this story. He doesn't respond to the requests and the reactions of people with harshness. Instead, he responds with compassion and kindness. And we ought to respond that way as well when people ask us the most difficult question. But this is a a place of, of peace in our hearts that we must arrive at carefully and with conviction and not just be told not to ask difficult questions. Asking the difficult questions leads us to a place where we can truly trust God. Jesus says, Lazarus has died. 
For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let's get up and go to him. And, and the reaction is they were trying to kill you there. Well, you're going to go, you're going to go back there now. And, and Jesus says, indeed, we're going back. We've got to, uh, we've got to do this. Um, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to see the glory of God. Notice Thomas' response. I'm, I'm so, I love Thomas as a character, and not just because he struggled intellectually. I love Thomas because when, when, when Jesus says, we're going to go back there, and yes, we could die, Thomas's response is, let us go with him that we may die too. He's called the twin. I think, I think they called him the twin because he either looked like Jesus or anything that Jesus said, Thomas was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that, right? He's, he's called the twin. Um, so, so he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. We're going to follow Jesus to his death and we'll die with him. I think that's why when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that, that Thomas said, absolutely never, no, not ever will I believe because his heart and hopes were shattered. As Jesus arrives on the scene in Bethany, word makes it to Martha that Jesus is coming, and she went and met him. I imagine that Martha probably, in prepping for morning, you know, after getting all the food ready and all the things that needed to be prepared, she said to someone, oh, and by the way, if you see Jesus coming, come and let me know right away, right? You know, she probably had that on her list of things that could happen. And so somebody comes and says, the the Lord is coming, and she gets up and goes out of the village, and she meets him on the road. Mary stays in the house, and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then I think she makes this request. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She receives the depressing answer. Your brother will rise again. Right? This is, this is the answer that we hear in the midst of our difficulty. Trust me, right? Trust me with your difficult circumstances. Trust me with the fact that, that you're looking at your finances and you think, I can't, I can't make it past this point. Or you're looking at somebody and the choices they're making and, 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 the, and the responses in, in your heart is, there's no way that they will ever survive these difficult choices. Or, or, or I've been praying for this person to come to Christ, Lord, and now you bring this into their life. You let them go through this. Now they're going to curse you and turn further away. And the response that we hear is trust. Trust. We can hear that. Not as a promise, your brother will rise again, but we can hear it as a platitude. Follow me because I am the teacher and I know the truth and I'll give you truths to trust while you wait to see your brother one day. That's the way she hears it, because how does she answer? She says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection. She hears it as a, as a promise that one day Lazarus will be raised. But Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? Does she Does she truly, really believe it? Is she ignited by the truth of what's been said to her? Does she react to and respond to it and say, okay, I I, I do believe it. The good news is, is she does. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. What does she say to him? I trust you in the midst of this difficulty. She goes then and she tells Martha, the the master is here. Mary, uh, I believe that probably the more sensitive of the two is is crushed and and hurt and broken. Uh, Martha is, is holding things together, making plans. Um, Mary is the one who's sitting in her room with the box of tissues mourning about the future, you know, and just thinking. Uh, the mourners gather around her as she walks to where Jesus is. And I believe that she fell at his feet. Crushed. Yeah, that's what it says in verse 32. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died I hear, I hear in Martha a very practical request, right? Anything, anything you ask, God, God will give it to you. I believe that, right? And that, maybe that's a, come on, you know, you finally made it. I think that, that for Mary, her reaction, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died with no request accompanying it, is, is just that her, her trust and her love and her assurance in Jesus helping has been shattered. Jesus gives no saying of comfort here. He doesn't offer any explanation. He doesn't say, I was, I was busy handling other matters. When he sees her weeping and he sees all of the people Weeping, he is deeply moved in spirit, it says, and greatly troubled. He is agonized over the situation before him. And he asks the question, where have you laid him? They take him to the tomb. And there is the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. I think that when we are confronted with the fact that God is not acting in our situation. We are dialing the phone over and over and over again, crying out to heaven, asking God to intervene, asking him to work, asking him to move, asking him to change the circumstances, to transform this person's heart, to give us some financial relief, to help us in this difficult circumstance, to change the heart of our child, whatever it is that we're, we're working with and we're saying, why no answer? Why so much silence? How long until you respond, Lord? I think that we, as Jesus says, can see the heart of the Father because we've seen Jesus and Jesus stands before the grave of Lazarus and he mourns. God cares. He does care. But he has reasons for doing what he does that are beyond our ability to know. The Jews who are, who are witnessing see that these are not just uh, fake tears. This isn't the, the professional mourning of the Jewish people, which, which was passionate, but you, you would pay to have some, come, some people come out and, and to mourn so that, that, the, that the effect would be enough, that the person would be properly mourned. See how he loved him. But then there's that undercurrent, that question. Verse 37 is there. 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? People see the genuine love and care of Jesus, but they think, what is that? Why, why, why wouldn't he have gotten here? Why wouldn't he have done something? So Jesus is there at the tomb, and he's weeping. I believe he weeps for love of Lazarus. But I think as he weeps, he also thinks this, that, that from the start, from the sin in the garden, all the suffering and all the pain in the world perhaps could have been avoided. That, that this gravestone here is a monument to the defiance and sinfulness of man. That, that, that evil had come into the world and that sickness and illness of every kind were there because of the curse on the ground. And that every single human being that, that died, died because their soul had sinned. That's what the Bible says. The soul that sins must die. Lazarus was not innocent of sin. He was born in sin. He was born separated from God. And though he responded positively to Jesus' teaching, he still had a sin problem. He had committed sins, and there was no way for him to remove them through his good works. The Bible says there is no one who's good. No, not one. Jesus loves men and women created in the image of God. He knows them in their sin and he accepts and loves them anyway, but he knows all of their fates. Every single one of them. He knows. He sees the problem of sin. And he sees the end of sin and that's death. I believe... That, that the Father communicated with him ahead of time, that, that, that he knew somehow that this one time, one of several but very few instances in the Gospels, that this one time he would be able to be confronted with the tragedy and the horror of, of death because of sin, and he would be able to do something about it. I believe that probably made his heart leap for joy. In verse 39, he says, Take away the stone. Martha, again, always practical. He's, he's been in there for four days. Anybody, anybody reading King James? I love the translation that they came up with in 1611 when they wrote King James. Martha says, but Lord, by this time he stinketh. Isn't that great? <laughs> Jesus says to her, did I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Right? She's saying, no, 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 can't do that. Right? Anything you ask for, God will, God will give it to you. But now you want the stone taken away. No, 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 not going to do that. Bad smell. Not good. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. See, I believe that, that, that Martha believed in who Jesus was. She, she believed that he was a prophet or a teacher come from God and that, and that God had blessed him abundantly. But, but she did not believe enough. At this moment, she did, not, she did not believe in terms of application in the very moment that she was living to say, whatever he says, let's do it. Let's follow. Let's obey. He can be trusted. He rebukes her gently, I believe. Take away the stone. There'll be an odor. Did I not tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so she responds positively. She probably, you know, goes to whoever's in charge and says, let's, let's move it. Um, 
And then Jesus prays. He prays, I believe, for the people who are, who are listening. He prays to his Father. This isn't a show prayer, but he's, he's praying so that those who hear will hear and they will be able to apply what he says to their, to their, to their lives. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I thank you, I, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So they've taken away the stone. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There's a, uh, there's a cartoon uh, that, that, that lines up with a, a line from a theologian. That, that One theologian has said, I can't remember who it is, that if he had not qualified what he said, that, that every single dead person would have come out of their tombs. If he had not just said Lazarus, uh, and the cartoon is a, uh, a gravekeeper, and he's saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Lazowitz, you'll, you'll have to go back into the tomb. You know, you, he did not call you. Uh, all of the dead would have come out had he not qualified. And I don't know, I don't know if that's true. Um, can you imagine what it would have been like to be there and to see that? The Bible describes him as the dead man. The dead man came out. Was he, was he coming to life? Was his body obeying Jesus as the physical creation of God, walking forward uh, in obedience, and life was entering back into him at that moment? Oh, he was all coming to life as he was doing what, what Jesus had commanded him to. What would, this, what would this look like in a modern movie? You know, the, uh, the, 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 the coffin opens, and the, the guy stands up, and everybody's amazed and like just what is going on. Um, and, and the guy is in the, the, the coffin and he's standing up and he's looking around wondering where he is. And he's like, why am I down here? You know, and you're all up there looking at me. Um, so, he's, so Lazarus comes out and he's all bound up in cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Let him loose. So there it is, the glory of God. God has the ability to give life and to restore uh, life to, to the one who has died. And that's the story that we tell in Sunday school, that God is the giver of life. And we rightly think if God can raise Lazarus, then he can raise us all, right? That death is not the end, that one day he'll come. Will it Will it, will it happen quickly? Will he just say, hey, all the dead people who've believed in me, rise? Or will he say, Keith Meyer, come forth and life will come back? We, we, don't, we don't know. But we do know that death is not the end. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 promises us in, in, in Revelation chapter uh, 20, 21 and 22. But there's this bitter taste that I hope remains, right? Lazarus comes back from the dead, but that's not the way every single story ends. In fact, all the others end differently. But Jesus says God is glorified in this. How then is the, is the son glorified? Um, this is a singular miracle. This is a, a unique miracle in the gospel of John in, in, in this book, it's a capstone miracle. It's the last of the signs that Jesus performs. It's the miracle that ends his signs. So, so here's what I believe happens. Those 
who have walked in the light and who have believed have not stumbled. They heard what Jesus was saying, and though they were troubled in their heart, they, they believed. If you look at verse 45, we see that, that great belief breaks out among the peoples. But here's something else. Presented with the work of God, presented with the truth of who God is, and presented with the truth of Jesus' identity, those, yes, who walk in the light have not stumbled and they grow in their faith, but those who walk in the darkness and who refuse to believe continue to walk in darkness. The fools become more foolish. They walk in the dark and become encased in greater darkness. They are lost, yes, but they become more lost or really lost. Something interesting is going to happen here as we end, okay, as we, as we draw this to a close. Uh, the best kind of a plot is the one that twists at the end, isn't it? Where you've watched the whole story and you think, I know exactly what's going on here. And then it turns and everything changes. John uses the word glory two different ways in his gospel. Okay? There's two ways that he uses the, the word glory. Uh, the first one is, is the way that we use the word glory all the time. Praise him, right? Hooray for God. That's the way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. All of our hallelujahs to God forever and forever. God is great. God is greatly to be praised. Give him praise and glory, some preachers say. John 12, 28. Father, this is Jesus speaking, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. God draws people to himself by demonstrating his power in miracles and in teaching, and those who believe see it and praise God. Glory, glorifying God is giving fame and glory to God, right? Recognizing and appreciating the magnificence and awesomeness of who God is. It doesn't increase God's actual glory, not one bit, right? Um, think about it. You get, you get the well, the, the absolute daily requirements or whatever it is, your minimum daily requirements every day of vitamin C from a glass of orange juice, right? But if you don't know that, right, the, the orange juice has all of the glorious vitamin C that you need. But, but unless you know that if you drink that, then, then you'll, you'll, be, you'll be all settled for the day, right? Unless you know that, then you, then you are not giving it the proper glory. Does that make sense? God's glory doesn't increase, not one bit. But, but the fame... And the recognition of his wonderfulness does increase. C.S. Lewis' reaction to this uh, story, I think, I think shows the worldview of many people. When, when Lewis became a Christian, he said that, that the Bible's incessant demand that we praise God was highly offensive to him. That why, why, why does God spend so much time asking to be praised? Is, is he conceited? Why does he, why does he need so much honor all the time? You know, he compares him to an aging woman who demands that everyone around her give her compliments. Aren't I pretty? You know, um, is that the way that God is? That's one use of Glory. The answer to why it's not conceited of God, by the way, is, is that uh, for God to be absolutely good, he must give us what is best for us. If he's absolutely good, then the one thing that everybody needs, God will give to them. And the one thing that everybody needs is God. 
And so God lifts himself up as the greatest of all beings and says, praise me because that is what is best for us. Anyway, that's the answer to that question. I want to leave that on the table. Here's the second usage of glory. Okay. John chapter seven, verse 39. Now this Jesus said about the spirit. You'll have to go back and look at what that means. If you want to understand exactly what's being said here, um, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What does that mean? John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John 13, 31, when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. This is when Judas leaves to go and to betray him. Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is Jesus talking about? In the garden, as he prays, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prays like this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. They're going to come and take him and kill him. And when they raise him on a cross, it will be the moment of the Son's glory. That's what Jesus is saying. Look what happens in the passage. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who'd come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the nation should perish. He did not say that of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It is in the moment that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead that the road to the cross begins. He, he was, he was kind of on the way. People were upset with him. But when Lazarus comes forth, the foolish who do not believe, who run to the authorities and who say, we need to stop this man, they, they, they enter into the plot to put him to death. Hebrews 2.9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that is, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here's, here's what I think we ought to believe when we look at Jesus and we look at God or we look at our circumstances and say, would he do that to us? Would he leave us in, in this situation if he were, if he were good? If he's powerful, why doesn't he work for us? Why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he intervene? In this situation, to heal would have been too small a thing. To heal would have been just another miracle and one which is easily overlooked. To raise from the dead, to act in the life of one who believes, seals the faith of those who are already following in belief and they grow 
It confirms in power what's been testified to in the word. Jesus says, I can give eternal life. Believe me. Now see it. But to raise the dead also confirms the unbelief of the unbelieving. It hardens the heart and drives the heart that refuses to believe away from God. And these men set their minds in this moment on putting Jesus on a cross and saving their nation. By their own hardness of heart, the son will go to the cross of his own free will and and, and be glorified as he dies. Sinful men will crucify the sinless savior of their own free will. And with all in the world opposed to them, God will work the great work of saving all of those who will believe. So here's the question. Would God do that? Would he leave me in my pain and suffering? What is the purpose of my suffering? I would say this. It is the workbench where we work out our trust in God as he glorifies himself in our life. We look back at his example and say he was willing to die to save me. He asks me to trust him through my circumstances and to honor him as he promises to redeem me and to save me from my sins. And so I say this, trust him through difficulty. Trust him that one day he will show you the work that he's done in you and he will redeem your tears. You will say, That is good, and you were right and good to do it that way. Thank you. So let me urge you as we close to trust in a loving Savior who doesn't just say, believe, but who says, I will go to the cross to save. Repent over feelings of rage and bitterness and anger of suffering in the past and instead say, I should have trusted you or help me with my unbelief. And if you've been wounded or you struggle to love God because of a situation in the past, let me urge you to go before him in prayer and ask him to help you and show you how it is that you should trust. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to hear your word. We thank you for your goodness displayed on the cross. We thank you that when your life was on the line, you chose to act. That, that, that though you could have shrunk back and, and not made a scene and no one would have known and you could have, could have lived out your natural days, Lord Jesus, but instead you chose to raise Lazarus and to set, the motion, set into motion the events that would lead you to the cross. We thank you for that. We thank you that in this, in this scene, we don't, we don't see the perfect explanation for all the details or the way they worked out, but we do see your love and your care and your gracious action, even though it does not fit with our definition of what is loving. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you in the midst of difficult circumstances, when we find ourselves in the position of Mary and Martha mourning Lazarus, and we hear your promises saying that you are good, we pray that you would give us hearts of faith. We pray that as faith is set before us, that we would reach out and grab it and say, yes, we believe and we trust. 
We pray that you would see us through every trial and every pain and every difficulty with this knowledge. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.